0: Well, i trying to wrap my head around
1: she... Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist
2: And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist
1: Welcome to Trauma Code Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma
2: We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large Join us on Monday at 2pm on WBAI this the way you dare to me. I know Vs
0: explain and finish I going to do it oh, What's up? Girl like, I don't know what I'm doing Pullo, pullo, is still doing-
1: Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. And today is President's Day. Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. So tomorrow is uh, Fat Tuesday, uh, Mardi Gras, New Orleans, and Carnival across much of South America and the Caribbean, uh, including Haiti.
2: Haiti and, of course, Trinidad. Um, but good afternoon, everybody. It's Dr. Raphael here. Happy Monday. Um, yeah, it, you bring up a very important point across many countries. It is uh, what we call carnaval in Haiti or carnival time, uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans. It'll be that, um, yeah, I've been seeing some footage of Haitians in Okap, the independent city in the Northeast. People are parading in the streets with costumes, getting their dance troops together, So the country situation may not be ideal, but they're uh, not waiting for anybody else to organize their joy. The carnival lives in the people's spirit in this time of the year, and they're honoring that tradition. Uh, Also, as much as it's a dance party, it's also a time for messaging to the government. People speak out against deforestation, the cost of living, things like that. And probably one of the best to do that back in the day was uh, Michel Martelly. so the former Haitian president. And before his presidency, Michel Martelly was the entertainer known as Sweet Mickey. And long before he was president, he would be on the road, or sous béton, as we say in Haitian Creole, at the carnival. And his music was among the hottest every year. And he would call out the government regularly. I mean, whether intentionally or not, it's kind of like he was campaigning in his music long before endorsing any presidential aspirations
1: that political history of haiti is probably a little bit too much for us to try to get into right now we but won't
2: we won't do that
1: but uh, of course we just had on some new music brand new music uh from a haitian artist you want to just tell us about what we just heard
2: yeah that was the new release called clueless from a haitian artists well really world music artist now michael brun or michael brun if you want to look it up And he collaborates here with Nigerian artist Oxlade. Uh, Like I said, the new track called Clueless just dropped. Very good track. Nice little Afro beat. Nice little world music sound. I'm happy to share that with everybody today.
1: Uh, And we'll have some more music on uh, later uh, in the program, including uh, something that was sent up uh, to us from from some friends in Trinidad uh, uh, in the carnival there. Do you want to tell us anything about what to expect later in the show?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm definitely seeing on my timeline friends who are, you know, out in Trinidad every year living their best life in the carnival over there. And, um, it's looking really, it's looking really good, really enticing. I miss it a lot. I miss that energy a lot. Um, so we'll play a little something, uh, that I'm told is one of the hottest records out in the Trinidad carnival right now. So we'll get to that. Um, but another song that I remember. Uh, was a banger, was one you'll hear uh, in the background now. It's called Sawé by King Pasi, and that was from 1998, probably one of my earliest carnival seasons in Haiti 25 years ago. Very nostalgic for me. You know, growing up each school year, I'd be on the honor roll, but I I never got perfect attendance because my parents would take me to carnival in Haiti for a week every year. And it was one of the ways in which they passed down their culture, um, and it stayed with me. So you'll hear a little bit of King Pussy in the background. But before before we move on to the next segment, we'll also play a little bit of a new song, or a carnival song by Nyla Blackman and Skinny Fabulous, uh, banging in Trinidad and Tobago right now. It's called Come Come Home. Home. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one.
1: Unfortunately now that neither, neither Dr. Raphael can be uh, or nor myself can be in studio today uh, this is a recorded episode uh, because uh, between the President's Day school holiday, conflicts with our backup babysitters, we have a child care emergency uh, and some other obligations. So for the rest of the show, I'll be airing an interview uh, that I uh, did previously with a prominent national trauma surgeon, Dr. Haytham Khafrani who is, uh, Lebanese by birth um, and is currently the Chief Patient Safety officer and medical director of the Joint Commission's Office of Quality and Patient Safety. So basically one of the most prominent surgeons in uh, the United States in the field of patient safety uh, along with uh, will uh, we interviewed one of his co-investigators, Anthony uh, Gibran in their study of the 2020, beirut port explosion where basically the negligent storage of a massive amount of ammonium nitrate uh led to the largest peacetime urban explosion uh known in in world history basically that killed hundreds um and i was reminded about um this conversation after the uh, recent earthquake uh in syria and turkey and you know the resulting um building collapses and and other uh, sort of rolling catastrophes that have killed at least 40,000 people. Right. Uh, And in part of that conversation, uh, Dr. Kafrani states that um, failure in mass casualty is a failure of imagination. Uh, And so just a reminder, we don't know know, what's going to be the next um, crisis or catastrophe uh, when or where. And so... People, you know, if we're going to be responsible, have to stay vigilant and have to be aware of risk and have to think how would we uh, respond in worst-case scenarios, which is what um, some of the people, or at least one of the people we interviewed, and many people in Lebanon then and in Turkey and Syria now are faced with.
2: Right. I mean, when you think about these situations, um, you want to know what's helpful to them. I mean, obviously in times like this in terms of mental health, you know, anxiety might be up in the, in the folks who are suffering um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or even a peri-traumatic stress disorder. Like, you know, the entire, the entire event for them is, is, is traumatizing and, and potentially triggering moving forward. Um, so one of the ways in which we can be most helpful now is to just be somewhat reassuring to those folks who are going through something very difficult. Um, you know, if they've survived this, helping them get some sleep, helping people connect and talk to loved ones, um, rather than, you know, focusing on diagnoses and things like that. But, um, just, that's the kind of psychological first aid that, that is probably most helpful to them, helping them connect, reassuring them and by showing support.
1: All right. So we're going to have a a little musical interlude, interlude, uh, with that, uh, Trini Carnival banger right now uh, come home and then uh, followed by that will be the interview with Dr. Hatham Kafrani about the 2020 Bay Report Explosion.
0: I've been Don't you ever let me down again Cause I'm depending on you So you better come through this time Please hear my cry And if I ever let you down better come through this time Please hear my cry And if I ever Let you down, my friend It was a misunderstanding So if I took you for granted Then I promise from today I go jump, I can same skinny fabulous nyla blackman boom guess i will never let you down again nyla i'm sorry tell you
1: Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. Um, we'll have up next an uh, interview with Dr. Haytham Kafrani about the 2020 Beirut port explosion. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a trauma surgeon in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm very excited to have on with me uh, a very uh, accomplished trauma surgeon in his own right, Dr. Uh, Haytham Kafrani, uh, from by way of at least the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Kafrani, how's my pronunciation?
3: It's perfect. You would go for a Lebanese. <laughs> uh,
1: so th- thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, I also have uh, with me uh, two of his collaborators on a recent study. Uh, correct me if I misstate anything uh, related to the uh, massive port explosion uh, in Beirut. Um, Dr. Anthony Gabran are you hearing with us?
4: Yeah, I'm here. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, and thank you for joining us. And uh, remind me, Dr. Gabrón, where, where are you uh, training or planning to train in surgery these days?
4: So currently I'm doing a post research fellowship at the Mass General, but I'll be doing uh, my residency in the next few months starting at the University of Pittsburgh.
1: Excellent, and congratulations. Thank um, you. And we're also hoping to loop in uh, Dr. Alyssa Abu-Khalil uh, as well, who is a collaborator. While we work on that, I'm gonna go ahead and get started. First of all, thank you everybody uh, for joining us. Uh, and Haytham, I, I wanted to start with you. First of all, thank you uh, for joining us. I've uh, collaborated on you several times in you know the field of trauma surgery, um, but one of, or I guess several of the most prominent times I've seen you recently that have really resonated with me uh, had to do with your work around the uh, port explosion uh, in Lebanon. Do you mind just describing for us uh, what you know what happened in in Beirut um, that and what was the the morbidity of that? What was the effect on the surrounding communities?
3: Yeah, no, thank you, uh, Simon, again for having us. Uh, it's uh, it's a topic that is very dear uh, to our hearts. Um, so, as, as you said, I'm, I'm a trauma surgeon at Mass General, so I wasn't personally involved in the Beirut blast, but uh, You know, I I can give a quick blurb about it, but my involvement was when it happened, I felt completely hopeless and what can I contribute to them. So I I used my networks within Lebanon and the multiple hospitals and my research infrastructure to help pull a collaboration between the main medical centers there to collect the data on the victims as a tribute to the victims that fell that day. Um, but on, on August 4th, just for our audience, on August 4th, 2020, the Beirut, the Beirut port witnessed one of the largest uh, urban explosions of all time. Uh, it is actually rated as the, the second largest uh, explosion or the, the largest explosion since Hiroshima and Nagasaki that is not military. This is the extent of it. And and Beirut is a is a big city. It's the capital of Lebanon. has probably two or three million inhabitants, and this is pretty much at the center of it, facing the sea. And the uh, the I mean, there's a lot of loss of lives. There's uh, uh, really hundreds, if not thousands, of people who died. There's hundreds of thousands who lost their houses instantaneously. Um, there was a uh, wounded beyond your imagination. But the more important, which I think we'll go into details, is it happened at a very bad time in Lebanon's history because Lebanon at that point in time was suffering from the worst economic crisis uh, it witnessed in recent history um, and it was the, the in the middle of the pandemic of COVID-19. So there were almost like a lot of punches that the country was receiving. And that was a final blow that has since resulted in pretty much the collapse of the country. So I'll stop there. I don't know if if Anthony wants to add or you want to add anything to to it.
4: Um, Yeah, I can briefly comment about my experience uh, uh, on that night. So on that day, I was still in Lebanon. It was like shortly, it was two months after I had graduated from the American University of Beirut Medical School and at the time on that night, August 4th, 2020, at 6.08 p.m. exact, to be exact, I was at home. Um, and then we started, you know, I felt the closet was shaking, like it almost fell off the wall. And um, we didn't know at first, we didn't know what to do. You know, Lebanon has been hit lately by many uh, earthquakes, but it was never that strong. So we were um, in the moment, we didn't know if we needed to leave the building or so. And then a few seconds later, we heard the explosion. Um, so, and then a few minutes later or so, I started getting messages from the American University of Beirut asking for help, uh, asking everyone really to come to the hospital and try to contribute. And obviously I went there. It was hard to get there, all the roads, most of the roads were blocked. Um, there was plenty of people on the roads, etc. But eventually, when I made it, I was really surprised to see how the damages that the hospital had sustained. But also, I was surprised to see the chaos there. i would never seen anything like that at the American University of Beirut. And uh, at the beginning, we had to deal with a lot of lacerations. But as we progressed through the night, we started getting more and more complicated cases uh, that needed more uh, complex treatment and more uh, longer operations I would say so that's that's in brief my uh, my take on that night
1: and I definitely want to hear more about your experience Anthony but and you know if I quote any figures most of it is because of of uh, you know your guys work and, and work with people uh, people you collaborated with but as I recall I think you published that uh, more than 200 people kind of died right away and uh, mm-hmm. I think over 6,000 had uh, significant serious injuries. This was the third largest urban explosion basically ever recorded after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, so that was definitely uh, a, a huge, devastating blow. And, and as you mentioned, Dr. Kafriani, in the context of sort of an ongoing series of crises. Um, but Anthony, before you tell us a little bit more about your experience, you know, the, the day and the days following. Mm-hmm. Um, where where was uh, the hospital that you were working at? Uh, what is its capacity on a typical day?
4: Right. So the American University of Beirut, or in a big perspective, uh, Beirut has around seven major hospitals. Uh, three of them were very close to the uh, center or to the epicenter of the blast. And they were Almost out of uh, function on that night, but uh, AUB or the American University of Beirut, where again where I trained originally, uh, is kind of uh, fortunately enough was a bit farther from the hospital uh, from the from the uh, blast, but also not very far. Uh, I I kind of live at ni- uh, something like s- six seven miles away from the epicenter of the blast. Uh, the hospital I would say is about one two miles away from the epicenter of the blast. So I kind of had to commute from my place to uh, to the hospital. Uh, it's like a 20 minutes uh, ride by car on a typical day. But again, that day was much harder to get there because of all the, um, you know, the streets were mostly
1: blocked. And I know from many other presenters on uh, this topic that many of the hospitals themselves suffered significant damage. Where you worked, did you witness that as well? Or did you get a large influx of patients from hospitals and facilities that could no longer uh, treat patients?
4: Right. So uh, the American University of Beirut, again, was fortunate uh, in a sense that it didn't sustain too many damages as the other hospitals. It was still functional. Uh, The emergency department was still functional and so on. But uh, as you mentioned, that's correct. Like the three hospitals that were very close to the center or to the epicenter of the blast were almost completely out of function and they had to evacuate their own patients. Uh, so they sent some of them to me, to the American University of Beirut, uh, to the Lebanese American University Medical Center, etc. Yeah, so, so basically in addition to the patients so I mean like the AUB, AUB had to deal with uh, an influx of injured patients but they also had to deal with transferred patients from other hospitals, yeah.
1: And uh, do you want to describe uh, in any more detail your experience or your findings uh, when you've looked at sort of the, the the totality of the of this incident? So, uh,
4: so in the study again, we had four out of the seven major hospitals in Beirut. Uh, they collaborated with us, um, and by us I mean the Mass General uh, Harvard Medical School. So, what we found is that there was approximately eighteen hundred patients. Uh, were treated at one of those four centers on the night of the uh, of the blast and the days that followed. Uh, Thirty were dead on arrival or in the emergency department, and three hundred fifteen were admitted. So, in our study, we wanted really to focus on the patients that were admitted to the, to one of the hospitals uh, because really we can get more data on those patients, more granular and more significant data, and make more significant conclusions. As opposed to again, when we talk about this. Uh, 1,800 approximately, again, 2,000 patients that uh, many of them were just came in, had lacerations treated in the emergency department and were discharged on the spot. So again, those 315 patients that were admitted, if we take a uh, deeper dive into them, we found that the, the the range of ages really spans from one week to 93 years, uh, which is pretty striking. We also... Uh, found that most of the patients arrived by civilian cars, only 20% of patients arrived to the hospital by ambulance, which is a pretty low number, but also talks about the infrastructure, unfortunately, in Lebanon that was not able to sustain uh, such a massive influx of patients on the night of the uh, the blast. We also talk about something that is very, very interesting and has been described in the past, quite frankly, but it's it's important also to reiterate that we talk about the waves of the injuries, um, the wave of injured patients, I want to say. Uh, so the first wave of injured patients is really the walking wounded, the so-called walking wounded. And those patients are around the hospital often. They have mild injuries and they quickly come to the hospital and sometimes they overwhelm the emergency departments and that's what happened uh, during the burial blast and um, two hours after the blast that's when really you start seeing more severe more like severely injured patients presenting to the hospitals so this is important from a planning perspective that really patients who would present quickly to the hospital are not the most severely injured patients and you should uh, deal with those patients in an expedited fashion and uh, you know treat them close to their wounds and then send them home to be able to have the capacity and the manpower to deal with the injuries the more severe injuries that are going to present uh, in the next few hours and again this is something that we were able to show in the very last uh, study uh, we also showed that there were 475 procedures done in 239 patients mostly orthopedic and plastic procedures uh, overall just also a few more numbers uh, 3.5 uh, the on hospital mortality was 3.5 percent and the in-hospital uh, complication rate was 18 percent and the last number that just to be brief i want to quote one last number here 16% of patients had at least one long-term disability, which is a pretty unfortunate number uh, because it talks about really the uh, societal impact, the large societal impact and long-term impact really of this explosion, uh, mostly being uh, those those long-term disabilities were mostly uh, vision or blindness or uh, partial complete loss of function in one of the extremities.
1: Well, you know, one thing I appreciate about this study, I'm sure, you know, nobody who woke up that morning in Beirut anticipated this of all of the like rolling crises that have been going on there. And and one of the interesting things actually I, I found is that in people who experienced this, some of a certain generation had already um, blast proof the windows in their home so that they didn't actually have any glass fragments. So even though it comes in the context of a history of, of bombings and violence in the region uh, in the last generation or two, nobody expected this that morning, you know. Uh, very few people, I think, were aware of the risk that existed there, although there were people who had the opportunity and missed it to prevent this. Um, but the point that I want to make is that I think we never know what kind of crisis can await um, in any day. Uh, so I think that the preparedness that can be learned from this is really applicable everywhere. I mean, I think Dr. Kofrani can speak to this, but any trauma surgeon in the United States deals with mass casualties, and, and many of those are mass shootings, of course in any given year of their career, most likely.
3: Yeah, I think this is a very important uh, point, Simon. I mean, uh, as you probably have heard the, the quote saying that in mass casualty events, the only failure is the failure of imagination of what could be the next disaster we have to deal with. Uh, Lebanon is not not a, a newbie, if you want, in casualty, mass casualty events, and you know, fortunately, the history of the Middle East is like that. So it's it's a very resilient country and able to deal with a lot of situations. But nobody, as you said, nobody imagined uh, a blast of that magnitude affecting so many people and literally in a split second, everybody. It's not like it evolved over a day or so. It was in a split-second uh, blast. And there is a lot of lessons that could be shared with the rest of the world. And, and whenever you want, we can go into some of them that emanated from, uh, from our discussions, our qualitative part of the study, if you want, where we had multiple discussions with a lot of people who firsthand took care of people that day or managed the crisis.
1: Yes, please. I think those lessons are are really uh the gems that we can take from this experience
3: yeah i mean the, the first one you already alluded to uh there was a lot of glass related injuries and they tended to be of lower injury severity so and but the the you know none of them you know well not, I wouldn't say what none of them, but the majority of them did eventually okay their their injuries were lacerations soft tissue lacerations. And actually, a good portion of them were managed in the emergency room and then discharged from the emergency room without needing to be admitted. But the, the uh, you know laminating the glass could have prevented those injuries, and it could have affected the care of the more severely injured. Because one thing injured that... Resource availability. Yeah, exactly. Our, our study showed one thing very clearly, and we have a nice graph in the study if people are interested in looking at it is what happened is the four remaining functioning hospitals, they were completely overwhelmed in the first three hours by the, patients, the, the, the in, inflow of patients with low severity injuries walking into the ED. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the injured. Like, here you go, a glass fell on you. You have a huge laceration gushing blood. What's, what do you do and what does your family do? They take you and they, you, they walk you or they drive you to the nearest hospital. But that, those number of patients just pretty much overwhelmed the ED capacity in all the hospitals. Now, again, th- these hospitals are very resilient. They were able to deal with it. They were heroic, but it could have affected the care of the more injured that they needed attention um, and, and the triage needed to happen. That's lesson number one is laminated glass in areas at risk could have prevented. But from a hospital disaster preparedness, There was no question that the role of the trauma surgeons in those hospitals was absolutely crucial. They were the triaging, they were looking, you know, they they were able, they have the expertise, they have the experience to recognize that the patient that's producing the most noise might not be the patient that needs your attention first. And they had a very good system and using a lot of the judgment of who goes to the OR, who goes to the ICU, who goes to the floor, and who gets discharged with a quick use of staples to, to close the laceration. So the role of triaging was very important. The third one was in areas that might suffer similar things, hospitals need to think really hard about where to place their vital functions what does the hospital need at baseline to deal with a mass casualty event? It needs a functioning operating room, a functioning radiological suite, and a functioning laboratory that can process labs and blood bank. So those four, I mean, they're not the most important, but in a mass casualty event, these could be the four most important vital functions of the hospital. And placing them in a, in a protected area like the basement or underground could keep them functioning. That's what happened with three of the other hospitals. Their vital functions were out. And if these vital functions are out, there's nothing else that they can do safely. And then the other one was the electronic medical records. And it was a very common theme that came out from a lot of the hospitals. Their electronic medical records failed to step up to deal with the mass casualty event, the process of entering patients through the regular medical record. And AUB, for example, has EPIC. And EPIC is the most widely used electronic medical record um, system in the entire United States. And perhaps creation of like a disaster mode of some sort in EPIC that hospitals can revert to that allows to bypass the very important Um, functions of ensuring patient and identity and how to register, but something that allows a faster, more effective way of entering patients into the system. So an X-ray could be, you know, linked to that patient. Uh, A lab test could be linked an OR could be linked to that patient. Uh, That's another area that electronic medical record systems were not ready for a mass casualty event of that nature and that size. And there was also, um, people mentioned, all these hospitals, they have mass casualty disaster preparedness plans, and they have drills. But what everybody said is they these drills mean as good as they were, they were not as realistic as they could have been, and they feel they have room for improvement. These are some of the lessons that came out of the study that hopefully the rest of the world can, can learn from and you know, perform as good or even better than the Beirut hospitals did on that famous day.
1: Wow. There's a lot there that uh, at some point in the near future, I want to talk with you more about. Um, but for our audience, well, one thing that uh, it reminded me of is you know when this blast happened, we in uh, New York had just kind of begin to tread water again after the tsunami of patients related to the first COVID wave in March, April, May, June of uh, 2020. Um, So, uh, and and, you know, this blast obviously happened in that same context, what, what, uh, you know, where does the experience of this explosion fit with, uh, if either you feel like you're able to speak on it, Beirut and Lebanon's experience of the COVID pandemic.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let Anthony, since he was there actually firsthand, but I mean, that was in the middle of a peak in, in Lebanon pandemic. It actually peaked even further right after the blast. And at that moment in time with all the casualties, I think AB itself, its emergency room, saw 500 patients in the first few hours. Uh People tried their best to keep, you know, the, the providers to keep or the clinicians tried to keep their masks and, you know, their precautions on. But obviously, it just was not practical with everything they're dealing with. So there was definitely uh, a risk that all of them took. And and there's no question in my mind that there was a lot of COVID that was unfortunately um, translated to patients and to physicians at that point um in time but i can tell you when you hear the rest of the stories the individual stories of heroism you know the the surgical resident who um, was you know he fell in the blast he was working until he passed away in the emergency room and he turned out himself as he was taking care of people he was injured from the blast and he had rib fractures that you know and he was just biting the bullet and keep going and he didn't take care of himself until he passed away in the emergency room. They had to take care of him. So when you, when you, when you hear of these stories, you know, the, you think of like, are they, were they really trying their best with the COVID? I think they were trying their best, but their best was just could not keep up with the, uh, with the occasion.
4: Right. If I, if I may also comment on this. So um, Dr. Kafran is perfectly right. I mean, on that night, again, with faced with the severity of, you know, this, or the, the the urgency of the situation, uh, we still tried to protect ourselves, but it was not our you know high on our priority list, unfortunately. Um, and also, we quickly you know there was quickly a shortage of PPE, um, and uh, so even in the weeks after, and the, the days and weeks after, when I volunteered and worked at multiple with multiple NGOs, we had to rely heavily on. Uh, international help i remember vividly there were uh, french soldiers soldiers actually who used to visit our tent every day and they would bring with them ppe and so on uh, masks etc because we didn't have any at the time um so even before the explosion we were almost running short of this because of all the surrounding you know um financial and economic uh, situation or the crisis that was going going on in the country.
1: And I can only imagine if you lost about half of the hospital capacity that day, estimating, um, and there was a huge event that brought everyone together with a shortage of PPE, what the weeks following were like in terms of uh, patient volume at the hospitals.
3: I, I could tell you, uh, so uh, a few weeks after the blast, a couple of weeks, I... Uh, I personally went to Beirut and uh, it was more of a symbolic gesture, probably helped me, but then they helped them because they did not need me. But I, I staffed the ICU for a week at the American University of Beirut. And I I can tell you the, the morale was down. Um, there was shortage of PPE, but there was, there was enough to go around, but you needed to be really, um, Careful how to use, how to when to get rid of it, and try to keep to make use of one PPE that you can for the rest of the day. But at that point in time, uh, a lot of the support from all over the world, including in the U- from the U.S., was coming towards Lebanon and towards AUB, and they were getting part of the donations that were received that they were receiving had to do with the uh, 95s that were in shortage. In addition to like surgical sutures and surgical staples and equipment like that, that they, they were going through quickly. Uh, but I, I think I did not feel that the the PPE was in sh- such shortage that you couldn't protect yourself. But you felt the shortage in your daily uh, practice in the ICU. And but more importantly, I felt the morale was really down uh, among most people. Uh, that and that was about three to four weeks later.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm curious about that because, um, you know, one of my questions is in the context of the current, uh, uh, you know, health situation right now. Are, you know, the health workers able to take care of themselves and their patients and their families right now? Uh, and What's the situation like, you know, a couple of years out?
3: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, both Anthony and I can tell you because we both have families back there. I think, like I told you, it was almost like a – a match of boxing, and and Lebanon was receiving a lot of punches between the COVID, the political unrest, and then, and then the economic unrest, which was really, really quickly uh, evolving, and the blast came as kind of really a uh, a mortal punch, if you want. The country has continued to deteriorate, uh, specifically economically, since, and the situation is um, is almost untenable in the country Uh, from a healthcare provider, which is what your question was. There is a significant exodus happening in the country. Lebanon has always boasted to have one of the highest levels of healthcare that they can provide the physicians, the surgeons in Lebanon tend to be some of the best in the world. They decide to go work in Lebanon. Many are trained in the premier institutions in the U S And I can tell you, for example, the Department of Surgery itself has lost nearly a third of its surgeons in the last year alone. uh, And they've traveled back to the U.S., to Europe, to the Arabic Gulf area, uh, and just uh, kind of seeking better life, if you want. So the situation has continued to deteriorate, but mostly because of the economic breakdown uh, that happened, continued to happen and, and accelerate after the blast. Anthony, any, um, any, I mean, I, I, to, to give people an idea before I, I let Anthony answer, is the Lebanese lira or the Lebanese pound two years ago, one US dollar was 1500 Lebanese pound. And Lebanon was a middle, like I wouldn't say high income, but definitely middle income to higher income country. Now, one US dollar from 1500 Lebanese pounds is nearly 26,000 Lebanese pounds. So somebody's salary that used to be $5,000, their salary is now like $150 per month. So the situation is pretty dire and um, and I think it's affecting all sectors, including healthcare and the capacity of the country.
4: Anthony? Right, so I mean, just to take a step back here and. You know, put things into perspective for the viewers who are not familiar with the history of Lebanon. I mean, I think how did we get here? Actually, I think Lebanon emerged in the nineteen nineties from a fifteen year civil war that had really damaged the infrastructure and uh weakened the government uh very severely, very severely so. And so over the last also decade we had a massive influx of Syrian refugees, and then over the last three years the country has plunged Dr. as Dr. Gafrani is mentioning. It has plunged into an unprecedented economic crisis and the currency has lost more than 90 percent uh, of its value since 2019 um, and on top of that you know the healthcare as you mentioned uh, was struggling with the COVID pandemic so in many many aspects we were not prepared on august 4th to deal with a with a catastrophe of this scale i mean no one hopefully will have to deal with such a thing and no one might be, be ever prepared. But I think, again, in this, putting it into context, it just um, shows how much this was a tragedy, really a tragedy to the country.
1: And, uh, you know, the next question might be a, a little bit uh, difficult or I don't know if you give you opportunity to be a little creative, but, uh, and we can start, I guess, with uh, Anthony, if you want. Uh, are you able to, you know, obviously, you, you grew up in um, Lebanon, uh, now working in the U.S. Can you put down into words somehow how you feel your relationship uh, with uh, with Lebanon and, and where, where are you from in Lebanon?
4: Right. This is a great, great question. Thank you. So, I mean, I think um, I'm very attached to Lebanon personally. I grew up, uh, I was born and raised actually in Lebanon. My My parents, both of them are Lebanese. Um, I have, again, very deep bonds with Lebanon. I'm from the south originally from a, a small town called uh, Jezine, which is a beautiful uh, place. And again, I'm very, very proud of being Lebanese. I grew up there. Uh, the Lebanese people are very welcoming. Uh, they, um, it's famous around the world that, you know, they're very welcoming whenever you come visit. The food is amazing. The culture is really a rich culture very rich history as well that I, again, take pride in. And I'm mostly proud also really when I came here to the U.S., I saw how much Lebanese people were successful uh, in the U.S., but across the world as well as physicians and in other specialties. So that makes me uh, personally very proud uh, of being Lebanese.
1: Dr. Kafrani, do you have anything to add? I I think I saw (laughs) in one of your bios that you're from, uh, actually, don't let me mispronounce it. Can you tell us where you're from and
3: and, and anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I'm still trying to figure that one out, uh, Simon, because my mom is from the south as well, from a a city called Tyre or Sur. And my dad is from a a town in Albika called Shmistar, And I've lived all my life in another city called Saida and another city called Beirut. So I'm like from all over. And the whole country is the size of Rhode Island. So it's like, it's not really worth splitting. But I, I actually feel also I have a huge love and uh, that is hard to describe. I've been in the U.S. since 2003, so nearly 20 years now. And my joke to people when, when they ask me the classic question, how do you feel American if you're Lebanese, is I say I am doomed forever because in in the U.S. I feel extremely Lebanese, and my identity as Lebanese is always at the surface. I am never hiding it. But when I go to Lebanon, they tell me I'm too American there. So I'm, uh, you know, hopefully my kids will have a better time. But the point is, uh, I have a, a huge emotional attachment to Lebanon. I grew up there until I was 25 years old. Uh, I, I appreciate its culture. I appreciate its history. I definitely appreciate its food. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, I, I am, I, I'm sad a lot of times for the troubles that we're going through. I think Lebanon will come out of these troubles eventually and they will emerge to its natural place among all the other nations where it contributes a lot to it. But uh, until then, we're going to try to help it in the way we can and in a way that helps it just pass these difficult days it's passing. So that's it. That's my my spiel on it. Well, if um, I
4: may add something, just sorry to interrupt, just wanted to add something uh to that point about like you know dr kafari mentioning beirut rising again or you know lebanon rising again it it has been said that beirut has been destroyed and rebuilt seven times i think it talks about the really the resilience of the lebanese people and how much they've been through struggles over the ages and over over the years and um they've been really pushed forward and always um, uh, you know, came victorious, I think, or, so I think Lebanon will rise again. Hopefully knowing the people there, I know they can re- rebuild the country and make things, uh, better, hopefully in the future.
1: Well, I, I, really want to thank you guys, uh, for the time, but before I let you go, um, I, I apologize. I probably should have warned you, but I always like to ask guests for a recommendation, uh, for, you know, a book, music, a piece of art, uh, performance. Something that you would recommend to me and my listeners that we might not uh, uh, share otherwise. Um, and, but I'm going to give you a moment each to think about that. Um, but one of my, uh, what I wanted to give as a recommendation, and, and I, I usually don't, but uh, interesting history that one of my close friends from elementary, middle, and high school is a little bit of a rock star. And he's in a band called Beach House uh, from Baltimore that's touring right now. Um, not everyone's favorite uh, music, but I have to say seeing them live, you know, they, they choose which spaces to perform in and and the acoustics and and the way that they layer chords and melodies is really impressive in their performances. So if you ever have an opportunity to see Beach House, uh, definitely I encourage you. If you guys had any uh, recommendations, Anthony, do you have uh, had a chance to thought about it? Think about it.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, I would recommend the book from uh, my favorite uh, author, With whom I share my last name, actually, uh, Jibran Khalil Jibran, who's uh, originally from again Lebanon. He came to Boston and um, lived here for a while. The Prophet, the book is called The Prophet. I think it was one one of my favorites, and it's a very philosophical, very deep book. And I definitely would recommend anyone who has the time and the energy to read it.
3: Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, I will definitely try Beach House. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look for it. I'll look it up. And I'll always looking for recommendations. Uh, I am, you know, one of my favorite hobbies are hiking and reading. So it's a good question for me. So I have two recommendations, two book recommendations for people. Um, they're both by uh, another um, writer. He's, the books are in French, but they are translated in English. The first one is called Deadly Identity, and sometimes it's translated in the name of identity. It's by an author named Amin Malouf, and uh, it's a it's a very good book to read, especially if you're in the U.S., because it talks about what is one's identity uh, made of and makes the argument that we're all like onions and, and built of tens and tens of identities, and you know, what comes to the surface is typically... The mirror image of what's threatening us at that point in time. So, very interesting book, very relevant to people living in the US in this, you know, pot of identities here, uh, melting pot of identities. The second book is, uh, is a historical fiction book. It's called Samarkand, which is a city in Uzbekistan nowadays, but the book is just a historical fiction, and I found it fascinating. To kind of imagine somebody reading about New York in a thousand years from now, how would they perceive it? And that's why I find that book very interesting. Um, in terms of music uh, piece or entertainment piece, um, one of for the Romantics among your listeners, I think one of the most romantic songs I've ever heard that comes from Lebanon is called Bala Walashi, which means "without anything," and it's uh, it's by an, uh, a guy named Ziad Rahbani. And if they can find the translation in English and they want a romantic song to share with their partners, I think they would enjoy it.
1: Well, th- thanks again so much uh, for joining us uh, on Shaiwanana uh, Radio and uh, WBI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Uh, this has been uh, Dr. Ha- uh, Haytham Kafrani and Anthony Gabron talking about their research uh, related to the... Uh, port Explosion in 2020 in Beirut, Lebanon. So thanks again for joining us, guys, and I look forward to, to seeing you again out there. And, and best of luck, Anthony, in your training. I'm sure you'll have a blast in southwestern Pennsylvania. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us on Trauma Code for our interview with Dr. Haytham Kafrani about the Beirut Port Explosion
2: of 2020. Uh, I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald. And I'm Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Please don't forget to support the station, WBAI 99.5 in New York City, by calling 212-209-2950, pledge support or donate online at wbai.org, or... Give to WBAI.org and also visit us on Instagram, handle trauma code WBAI. Thanks for listening.
0: But I في تزيلي بلا كل اصحاب أصحابك السواد والمربوعين داير او تفي مش لا حدا هالفي بحبيني وفكري شوي